welcome to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. My guest today is Doug Casa, the CIO at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Hey, Doug, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It's uh, been almost a year since we spoke last, and so this is a great time to get an update on all things DIA. I think uh, we saw each other out at DOTUS briefly, or I saw you speak at DOTUS uh, in yeah. Portland, Oregon in December, and you laid out some of your priorities and Still at the top of that list, no surprise, is modernization of JWIX, the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System. Just to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about where that major project is at here in January of 2024? Sure. Yeah. So we are actually in our second year of JWIX modernization. So things are moving quite along. We've made our major contract award, got the effort staffed up. So that was a that was a big success for uh, last year since we last spoke. You might remember when we talked last that I said JWIX modernization was broken out into really three phases. The first being technology refresh. So this is replacing a lot of the aged network hardware. So things like routers and switches and encryptors uh, that we rely on for that connectivity, the secure connectivity, and updating those that are critical nodes that make up that web of the JWIX network. And so we're well on our way to finishing that. But part of it is more than just a technical refresh. It was also redundancy in network lines. So the circuits that we rely on to provide connectivity around the world, but also redundant equipment. So if and when equipment does fail, we have a second stack of equipment at our core nodes that we can fail over to. And in many cases, more than a a second stack, we've got full redundancy across all the critical network components. That's really been our focus over the past year is building that up around all of our uh, functional areas that rely on JWIX. The second piece of that that we've made a ton of progress on is in cybersecurity. And so part of that effort is we've traditionally done an initial assessment of those agencies and locations that want to connect to JWIX, that have a requirement to connect to JWIX. And that started within just a single security assessment. And we've moved that to continuous assessments now. And we have what we call the JWIC Cyber Inspection Program that we've stood up. And we've completed this year several dozen inspections of existing users' site locations of JWICs. And that goes through the full end-to-end realm of cybersecurity. Everything from how user accounts are managed Uh, to how hardware is managed in the sense of making sure that technical parameters and guidelines are implemented and patching is done. But beyond that, it also goes to things like, is there insider threat monitoring? How effective is it? You know, are all of the policies that are defined by not just the DOD, but IC being followed when it comes to cybersecurity? And so that's been a, a combination of a virtual inspection program. In many cases, red teams, where we actually are looking at is you know that penetrable from not just what do you look at it from like an adversary aspect but for like an insider threat aspect of is there a, a response capability and how well does that response capability work so we're actually actively testing that as part of our inspection process when we look to the future though and we're going to start this within the next year as you know from national security memorandum 8 that defines the requirements for zero trust for federal agencies. And so our inspection program is gonna also incorporate those requirements into it to where we're gonna look at the maturity of agencies as they proceed down the various pillars of zero trust, the seven in all. 
really starting with the data pillar of how well are agencies managing things like comply to connect within their network domains, their local network domains that connect to JWIC. So that's been a big focus of us this past year. And then the third piece of that is getting to where a lot would consider it more of the AI realm of the automation of network management. So things like software-defined networking, network segmentation to where when an issue is identified, a performance issue, as an example, we have the automated routing to a more efficient and effective route for a network path, where that's a been a very manual process in the past of you know, failing over to other circuits or isolating networks that might need to be isolated that goes into more of an automated fashion through software-defined networking. And that, that's really where we're, we're headed in that third phase of JWIX. Uh, but we made a ton of progress in that. So uh, we're, we're very excited that, that that's continued. And uh, I mean, I will say when I first started this job six years ago, I would say like 80% of my time was you know, involved in troubleshooting network connectivity issues. And, you know, since we've made a lot of these upgrades, especially on the technology refresh and getting some of that old hardware replaced, now it can really focus on the future and where we need to go. Yeah. I remember when we spoke last year, it seemed like so much of the effort was just around replacing things that probably should have been replaced maybe five mm-hmm. years ago or so. Yep. And so yep. you're well underway and, and catching up. And now it sounds as if you're turning toward more of the future, zero trust, right. automated automated network paths, things like that. Yeah. You know, IT is a lot like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you have your, you know, your basic needs, your foundation set, you can think about the future and how you need to involve. And that's really essential within IT. It's never static, right? It's never a set and forget of I implement something and then I just let it coast along for years and years, right? As new technology comes out, as new cybersecurity threats come out, as an example, we've got to continue to evolve. And now that we've got that foundation in place, we can start to think about, okay, now what does the future look like and where do we need to go? I wanted to follow up on some things you mentioned around cybersecurity, uh, the cyber inspection program. That sounds as if it's a more active look at everyone who's connecting to the top secret network. Right. Is that is that fair to say instead of just sending out, hey, here's the standard you have to meet, <laughs> make sure you do right. it, you're actually testing them against We're all these at, exactly, right? As the old adage goes, what gets graded gets done. And so you you may have heard from JFHQ Doden, their command cyber readiness inspections, their CCRI model that they do for the unclassified and secret fabrics. We're essentially doing a very similar model. In fact, we partner with JFHQ Doden in our JWIX inspections to make sure that we're sharing information so we have complete visibility of the posture of IC networks from end to end. So they are a part of our JWIX inspection processes as well. But that's exactly right. We not only set the standards and policy, it's actually virtually and physically following up, which includes on-site site visits to where we do visual inspections to ensure that the policy is implemented in the spirit that it needs to be implemented. And where it becomes a challenge is, is that JWIX is not just for the intelligence community or DOD. There are many other federal partners that, that use JWIX. You know, and when you all add it all up, it's probably well over a million users at the end of the day. Each one of those areas of the federal government, whether it's, you know, in the ICDOD or other domestic agencies, they also have policies that they have to follow, right, within their own communities. And so it's making sure that JWICs, especially the intelligence community policy, is being 
followed and implemented and all the parameters of that. You know, there are broad policies, as I mentioned, like NSM8 for zero trust that we all have to follow. But then there are also unique requirements under IC and DOD that have to get implemented to be able to connect and remain connected to JWICs. And I compare JWICs like a highway, like the, the beltway of networks that you use to, to go around the community. And then each exit is a separate you know, town, but in this analogy, a local area network of those agencies, right? So they're managing those specific local area networks, not only in accordance with you know, their agency requirements, but the requirements we have for remaining connected to JWICS as an intelligence network. Our inspections really ensure that as our policy changes, as the standards change, that all of those agencies are remaining compliant with those requirements. And yeah, I mean, following up on that, I mean, I have to ask this question just as a reporter over, over the last year, there's been a lot of talk about just the who should have access to that top secret network, how much access should be granted, and how do you monitor that access because of the right. Discord leaks? I mean, have, have those features around insider threats and the push towards zero trust has priority and the resources, things like that kind of increased because of that over the last year? I would say it's, it's definitely increased in terms of priority. Insider threats is always, you know, a significant requirement of the intelligence community and DOD. As we think about zero trust, it's it's the entitlements, that data pillar that really comes into play. And that's core of what we are going to be and what we are assessing under the JWICS inspection program is our users within those local area networks. Again, JWICS is the highway, right? We don't have users on JWICS. You don't log into JWICS. You log in to a smaller local area network that connects to that JWICS highway to those other local area networks around the community. And those entitlements of the users and their accesses are managed within those local area networks. But zero trust really takes it to the next level where traditionally we think about access in terms of, do you have a security clearance as an example? But when it comes down to need to know what data you look at, that really comes down into the data management standards that we have to implement in terms of how data is tagged, in terms of who should have the need to see that, and to what extent should they have access to see that information. And that's where we are really relying on elements like ODNI and Lori Wade, the CDO, to help us define what those data standards are in the CDAO uh, on the DOD side and DOD CIO for how do those entitlements need to be defined so then we can implement those within our local area networks. And our JWICS inspection program will, will assess the extent to which those data standards, metadata standards are being defined and applied to all of the repositories around the community. You know, traditionally we have only looked at, are you cleared to see something? But when it comes down to a need to know that really relies on data tagging standards which is going to take some time to do. Uh, many agencies are well underway, but certainly the, the core of the zero trust pillar for data is the entitlements and getting that implemented across. You know, the, net, the network gives you access. The network itself doesn't define how that access actually occurs. So that, that's where we're, we're following up with that inspection program. Okay. And I, I want to make sure we turn to some of your other priorities here. One that you mentioned that I was really interested in was improving the IT workforce at DIA. <clears throat> Just tell us a little bit more about what, what that means to you and how, how you're looking to do that. It's a couple different 
areas. Where this really started for me was when I was deputy CIO. It really became apparent after we attended, our director actually attended a, a picnic for our deaf and hard of hearing community. And what we thought was going to be, you know, a, a meet and greet event where we could, you know, speak with, with our employees really turned into a requirements gathering exercise to where we didn't realize just how far behind we were in supporting those with disabilities. And, you know, traditionally, we are not allowed to have video cameras and skips as an example. So where this comes into play for those with disabilities, deaf and hard of hearing as an example, is things we take for granted, like making a phone call to a, a doctor's office or, you know, calling your know, kid's school. That's difficult for someone that's deaf or hard of hearing who needs to use an external translation service to be able to sign the communication through an interpreter that can then help with those phone calls to make appointments. So what employees would have to do was walk out to their cars and actually use, you know, their phones or FaceTime or something like that to where they could call the interpreter service because they couldn't do that from within a SCIF. Traditionally, policy, security policy had limited our ability to do that, but we took on the challenge of figuring out a way around it. And so DIA was the first agency to actually come up with what that architecture could look like for those that are deaf and hard of hearing to be able to use a video interpretation service from within a SCIF to call externally. And that really led to a whole new re-energized effort within our agency that our CIO organization took the lead on to stand up a 508 program. So the Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. So technologies to support those needing reasonable accommodations. And we've really accelerated that in partnership with ODNI. And that, that's been my focus uh, really for the past several years of expanding our offerings in that area to support those with disabilities. And, you know, I'm proud to say that because of all these efforts, we, we actually serve, DIA serves as the lead for the intelligence community on the Federal Disability Accessibility Forum. So we're continuing, you know, that partnership around the community, but also representing the IC as a whole. When we get into the other areas of workforce expertise, which is a division I set up, one of the first things I did coming in as CIO a few years ago, it's really focusing on how do we keep people within the organization. You know, we, we do a great job of celebrating people when they leave and their accomplishments and, you know, taking everyone out to lunch and, you know, giving awards. But how do we move that to the left to be able to celebrate people staying? And that's been my focus. And that was certainly, you know, has been a challenge over the past five years, especially in IT, to where we're all competing for the same pool of resources, not only across agencies, but, you know, with industry and in different sectors of technology. Coming up with a strategy of how we not just recruit, but how do we keep people has been a priority of mine. So we've, we've offered a few different areas. One is education with industry. So we've stood up a program to where our staff can actually do six month to a year rotations within a company, uh, an IT company within industry, commercial company. So we have quite a few partners in industry that we, we run this program with, which has been a great benefit of getting people out to look at different ways of doing business, simple things like how do they run a help desk, you know, on the outside, outside of the federal government, outside of the IC, bringing back those lessons learned and then implementing those best practices within our operations has been a, a huge benefit to us. The other thing that we've been doing, placing priority on is better integration of our military cadre within CIO. 
our military not only bring uh, substantial expertise on the technical side, but they've also worked at many different locations that are also customers and users of the services that we run. So they bring a, a very unique perspective when it comes to how our services are used. And so we've been placing them in positions to where we have more of a customer-facing footprint. Really taking advantage of those skills has been a, a core effort over the past year as part of our workforce experience division. You know, as, as I think about the future and where we need to go, I mean, certainly recruiting is going to continue to be a challenge. But at the same time, you know, COVID definitely had some implications on that to where in industry, when I look at the retention rates, there's about a 23% turnover on average within industry was the last statistic I read. When I look at my organization throughout COVID, it was got down to 3%, right? And then beyond that, where we are today, we're around 7%. So we're actually doing a really good job of keeping people, which is awesome. The challenge with that is how do you continue to offer opportunities for those folks for growth, right? I've done a lot of employee engagement surveys in the past, both in industry and in the government. And the number one factor that comes out that I always see in every single survey I've ever done was the opportunity for career growth. Does an individual have an opportunity to continuously learn and also grow within the organization? And turnover is a key part of that because you have to have a turnover of people and, and positions to be able to offer opportunities for growth of the workforce. So education with industry has been a key part of that, but also internal rotation programs we've set up of getting people experience within other parts of our organization. We're a very large CIO organization. We do end-to-end -end IT, everything from software development to networks, as we were talking about, to cybersecurity. And so coming up with an internal rotation program within our organization has been key to be able to offer that career path growth. And we've been doing that within other directorates of the agency as well, to where you know they have an IT component perhaps focused more on an analytic function or a collection function of getting our folks in there to be able to get new experience. And again, just like education with industry, bring that back, bring those best practices back. So that's been a real focus of mine within workforce experience is creating that career path and that growth for our folks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, folks want to be able to try new things, especially, I think, the younger generations every yeah. few years, uh, probably some, something new, just you get that yep. itch and you want to. So, so it be, being able to help them move internally instead of losing them seems to be the, the goal here. Yep, that's exactly right. You know, when I look at my own career and, and where I started, I started my background is probably more in networking, but my first job was in software development. And then I moved into database management. And then from there, you know, I moved into more of the traditional intelligence roles of like collection management and then, you know, jumped in and out of IT. But I will say, you know, getting those different experiences really helped me connect everything and understand how to interpret a capability need into a requirement, into an actual design and implementation of an IT capability. And that's really what I seek to offer for our broader workforces, those experiences that allow them to do that. We get requirements such as, you know, pick any crisis, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, where we are right now with that. What's core to our success and our response in all of those crises is communications, right, of not only bringing data to users and applications to users, but doing so in areas that where we don't traditionally have connectivity. 
And that requires a different way of thinking, right? It really is out of the box thinking of things that we've never done before. Um, and we've been exceptionally successful um, in responding to crises, really using IT as the enabling function to bringing together the IC's core missions, which is ultimately collection and analysis. And I truly believe our, our organization has been so successful because our folks have had experience in all different areas uh, and functions of, of the IC and DOD and understand the different technologies that we have available. And, you know, it's it's not exactly, though, an easy recruiting environment out there for technical folks specifically. Right. I mean, every organization on the planet is thinking about AI, cybersecurity, obviously, um, you know, and then within the intelligence community, you know, your partners at the NSA have these huge recruiting targets in the coming years, you know, thousands of people they want to recruit. Do you find it being more difficult to compete for technical talent these days, especially cleared technical talent as these requirements for all sorts of technology capabilities yeah. increase? Yeah, it definitely is, especially within the NCR. I think what makes us unique is we have a footprint all around the world, so we don't have to just target our recruiting here within the DC area. We're all over the country, um, and our recruiting efforts really target those areas where, where we are. You know, and it's not just areas like at the combatant commands. We run the Joint Reserve Intelligence Centers all over the country. And so we look at those areas. W one thing that I've, I've really offered to our workforce is the ability, not just for telework, but flexible work locations. If you have access to one of our facilities to where you can log into your desktop and work effectively, we'll allow you to work there. And that's really been essential for our recruiting, especially you know, for, for our military to where we need spousal accommodations for our workforce, allowing them to really work from anywhere. So we have folks within, you know, anywhere ranging from Qatar, anywhere in the UK, all over the world. And so we've really taken advantage of that connectivity footprint that we have across the world and have targeted our recruiting efforts that way. And I think that's been attractive in the sense that it gives people new experiences, you know, working with new customer sets, new missions. And I think that's been really helpful for our recruiting. The other thing I'll say that's been been helpful for recruiting really is the mission. Uh, you know, I said earlier, most CIO organizations you find in the government are focused on policy and standards, not implementation. We have many roles that we do on behalf of the broader IC and DOD as a service of common concern. So we're designated, for example, by the DNI as the service provider for everyone for things like international systems, five I systems, JWICs, of course. I mentioned the work we're doing within uh, reasonable accommodations and supporting those with disabilities. We have such a diverse set of missions that we provide technologies for beyond just setting standards, but actually designing and building. And that's been attractive to not only help the retention rates of our workforce, but bringing in those new skills. There are very few organizations that you'll be able to work in with an IT that in all source functions such as DIA, right? To where we're looking at everything ranging from counterterrorism to counter drugs to uh, humanitarian assistance uh, and, you know, everything in between. Technology is essential for our operations in all of those intelligence topics. You know, that's been really rewarding for me and probably why I've stayed 23 plus years within the intelligence community and various fields of IT because I can't think of any environment where you're going to get those experiences and, and really have you know, such a mission impact. That, that's what's been attractive to me and has kept me. And I think that's really 
help the broader workforce as well of, you know, really seeing the results of your work and everything that you see in the news every single day, we are a part of and providing the connectivity to make all of those things happen. Okay. Well, I, I want to make sure we touch on artificial intelligence before we wrap up here. And uh, obviously AI is a big thing that the intelligence community really is looking at and feels sure. it needs to look at, of course. Uh, how are you thinking about AI at DIA and your role in sort of setting the groundwork for using it effectively? So we have six different pillars for AI uh, for the function that we are setting up within our agency. And that's being run under our chief technology officer, which is a, a part of our CIO organization that's that's leading the way for our agency in AI. And I shouldn't say it's just our CIO and CTO organizations doing this. This is actually a partnership across all of the, our directorates, everything ranging from mission services that provides a lot of the business functions, um, you know, such as our HR um, and our CFO organization for budgeting, down to science and technology, intelligence analysis, human collection. So they're all part of our AI strategy um, and the community of interest that we built within the agency. But the six pillars focuses on one of career development. So, you know, as we were talking about, a lot of new skills are required to fill some of these roles that we're, we're targeting, especially as you apply AI and automation within uh, those functional areas like collection and analysis. So it's it's really looking at how do we create that AI-enabled workforce uh, to, to work in that environment. So career development's a big part of that. The second is standards and governance. So when we think about AI, right, we, we have additional standards that we have to meet within the intelligence community for intelligence analysis, for example. So making sure we're getting things from all available sources, making sure our information is objective, validated, et cetera. So there is a, a an additional level of standards and governance that we have to apply because of the policy and legal standards that are very stringent that we have to adhere to. So that that's another piece of it as part of our AI program. The third and where I really come in as CIO is infrastructure and tools. So AI, as we all know, very data intensive. My role is not only providing the network connectivity to be able to share data, but also building up the necessary processing and storage capabilities to take advantage of it all. And the extra challenge I have is that I don't just do this in one area of the world. I have to do this in the entire world, right, in every country that we operate. So that's really been my focus as CIO when it comes to AI. But on top of that, it's it's the tools, right? So how do we bring in tools to be able to take advantage of that infrastructure uh, and all of the storage and processing that we're building up? Part of the tools, as I mentioned, are focused on how we do our own network management. So things like automating the more manual functions of how we manage JWIX or automating a lot of the day-to-day -day functions of you know, creating accounts and, and everything that goes into running your own local area network environment. That's where, where we've been taking advantage of AI from a CIO perspective. But then when you get beyond those three core elements of making sure you have the right workforce, making sure you got the right standards and the government's processes and the infrastructure and tools, then we get into the implementation. And so where we're starting is the experimentation of how do we collaborate across those different functions. So this is something the IC has always struggled with is we look at intelligence in stovepipes, right? So we have a tasking function, a collection function, uh, exploitation, processing, dissemination, et cetera. Those have all been independent. As we look at AI, 
the strategy is how do we bring those together? And we're experimenting with the technologies to be able to do that. But again, a lot of that's dependent on the tools and infrastructure to, to bring that data together. But experimentation is a core part of that. And within DIA, uh, a big role that we have is in foundational military intelligence. So we have a program named Mars, which is looking at the traditional way of how we've gathered you know, intelligence on critical infrastructure around the world how do we keep that, those records, um, not only up to date, but changing as the environment in the world changes? And so we've been looking at AI for that experimentation of, of really looking at managing intelligence with, with regard to infrastructure and foundational military intelligence in a more object-oriented environment rather than the traditional kind of relational database type of way that we've done in the past. But a lot of that goes into the AI experimentation of how do we take advantage of all the information from like social media as an example to be able to add additional context to the foundational military intelligence that we have. And then as we go in, mission support, of course, is essential. So really getting into the more unique functions that we have at the combatant commands that we serve. Uh, and then also, uh, for example, our defense attache offices all over the world. So they have very unique requirements for the functions um, that in the disciplines that they cover. And so it's really tailoring a lot of our AI strategies in that in that realm. And then, of course, partnerships. Uh, that's key. We're partnered with ODNI as well on building how do we not only do this across the IC, but with industry and academia and really getting a lot of those mission enabling capabilities from different perspectives and, and different best practices that are out there. So that's that's really the, the, the pillars of our AI program. Um, but right now we're we're really focused on building up the infrastructure and doing that experimentation within our, our core functions, especially with Mars. And Mars, if I'm remembering this correctly, is actually uh, being deployed this year mm -hmm. after many years of development. So that's a pretty significant AI yep. development for, for DIA in and of itself. Yep. And we've actually already begun rolling out the capability in, into full deployment. And when you talk about experimentation, I mean, if, if I have this right, I think Mars is... I'm no AI expert is more of the machine learning flavor of AI. How are you it, thinking it's about definitely a, a core component of it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what about how, how do things like large language models and things, you know, some of these newer, uh, at least commercial, commercially newer capabilities come into play? Do you think with what you're looking at? I think a lot of that is comes into play, n not only just within, within Mars, but I think of the, media exploitation role that we have as well. And so this this is a is a core function of our science and technology directorate to where how do we exploit the vast amounts of information, you know, that we're getting especially when it comes from different sources of media. And that's where a lot of those models come into play. This is something that we we've always struggled with of as an example, I used to be the program manager of the National Media Exploitation Center. And so we did a lot of cellular exploitation, a lot of document exploitation. And we're talking, you know, millions and millions of pieces of information that we're trying to characterize and make sense of. And this is really where we're looking at, at some of those AI efficiencies to, to help us weed through and, and make sense of the information. And I'm not one right now that believes that AI is going to provide the answers to intelligence. And really intelligence comes down to intent. AI can help us narrow down where we focus, but there's still going to be 
that analytic cadre that has to interpret what the intent is, right? So when you look at things like Mars as an example to where we see, you know, a brigade moving, we can make an assumption, but really it comes down to an analyst interpretation of all the different data points. And this is this is where a lot of those models come into play to, to bring that information to light, but you still need someone to interpret what does the intent mean. When it comes to AI, you know, com- computers are great at thinking in bits and pixels. You know, the, the foundation of AI is statistics, so it's looking for patterns. Where intelligence comes in is it's looking for the anomaly. And that's where we still provide have to provide that unique function within you know, intelligence analysis and collection of what's changed and what's different. And that's not necessarily always what AI is good at. And so really it is that partnership, I, I should say, you know, it's kind of kind of corny to say corny to say between people and machines that is really going to make AI successful. We are not looking right now at, you know, full AI to you know, make those analytic intelligence decisions for us. But it certainly has proven to be of a benefit getting at some of those larger challenges of how do we make sense of all of the information that's available to us. You know, in the old days, I, I used to actually work in the, the collection requirements field. Most everything, you know, I, maybe even up to 80% hits the cutting room floor of what we get. Now we have an opportunity and we're, we're taking advantage of those opportunities to not let everything hit the cutting room floor, right? Of try to look at the holistic picture based on everything that's available versus, you know, really constraining our focus based on what we can manually do. And so that's really what's been changing. And that's where a lot of those large language models also come into play. All right. Doug Casa is the CIO at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Doug, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.